Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-John Lithgow, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind podcast. This week, hard pivot in another direction, we have watched an action film. Harley, what is wrong with you? You didn't say where we stick to the list. You threw me entirely. I'll s- just let me start again. Oh no, we're keeping this in. <laughs> we also stick to the list for better or worse. There you go. <laughs> How about that? Yes, thank you. You've chosen chaos this morning. Mm. Hey, it's that bug that I swallowed last week. It's piloting your body now. Mm. It- it's in his brain, like Remy from Ratatouille. It's like Vincent D'Onofrio from that first Man in Black movie. Yeah. Anywho, we have watched Hellboy from 2004, not the most recent version. Um, well, clearly, because that came out, what, a year, two years ago? This version, directed by Guillermo del Toro, one of our favourite directors. We are a pro-Guillermo del Toro podcast. Oh, resoundingly, yeah, of course. But first, we're going to get into what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure. I'm just picking up a few of the things that I saw in the cinemas a couple of weeks ago that I separated over two weeks, uh, just to try and space things out. So today I'm going to talk about Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. It's a superhero movie directed by Destin Daniel Cretton, and it is based on the character created by Steve Englehart and Jim Starlin. And it's, of course, in the MCU. We follow this man named Sean, who, whose Chinese name is Shang-Chi, uh, but he's played by Simu Liu. He's living in anonymity in America, but he is drawn back to his childhood home to confront his thousand-year-old crime lord father, Zhu, played by Tony Leung, who is uh, got a scheme that's, that's not going to end well if it isn't stopped. This is one of the better origin movies of the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's got all of these new paths for Marvel that is expanding the universe in ways that hasn't been expanded before. It's taking a lot of cues from Asian cinema. You see a lot, there's, there's like an opening sequence where you see a lot of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and stuff of that ilk, for example. And it's introducing this fantasy sort of mystical element in a way that is more classical than Thor of it all. It is, is talking about, you know, ancient legends and myths and things and stuff like that. It's a, it's a really good performance from, from Simu Liu who is doing a really a charming lead turn here, but he is paired with Aquafina as his uh, best friend, Katie, and that's just outstanding. I mean, Aquafina, I, I love her and everything I see her in, and she she does really well here with her sort of barely controlled chaotic energy yeah. being matched with the more traditional, charming leading man energy of Simu Liu, and certainly the, the movie seems to pitch it as if they are a package deal, as if wherever Shang-Chi goes in the future in the MCU, including into the Avengers necessarily, she will be accompanying him. So that's good. Uh, I, I look forward to that. But Zhu as a character, the villain, is fascinating. He is a fictional character. He was created in lieu of the father that Shang-Chi has in the actual comics, which is Fu Manchu, who is... A pretty awful racist stereotype, and they were pretty keen to avoid that if they could. It, th- th- isn't he also the Mandarin, the real he Mandarin? Is. So that they have they have done that as well, and they have addressed some of the issues with the name the Mandarin also, where they have sort of tied it in, and they have made him again. He's an original character, but they have made him the Mandarin of the MCU, and sort of 
over the course of the film interrogated the idea of the Mandarin as sort of this not great archetype either mm. uh, and the motivations for why that might be. Obviously, within the MCU, the Mandarin is a name adopted by Ben Kingsley, who is also returning in this. Mm. And there is a commentary offered by some of the Asian characters in the movie of sort of, oh, of, well, of course they adopted the personality of this Asian crime lord and called him the Mandarin. Mm. Um, you know, there's sort of a, a bit of a discussion about that, which is appreciated. Do they go into the Ten Wings of it all in terms of the organization? Yes, yeah. They go into that. Um, I'm not sure how comic accurate it is. It doesn't have to be. It is really pared down to being a more personal story about the relationship yeah. between uh, Zhu and Shang-Chi. Uh, but Leung as Zhu is excellent. He's a really complex, interesting... I wouldn't even call him a villain. More like a, a, a tragic anti... A, a, tra- a tragic figure more than anything else. He's still a bad guy, but... Yes, but in in a complicated way. Yeah. In a way that he... Yeah, he's more tragic than outright bad mm-hmm. in this. How's the action? The action is really good. It's really well filmed. And that's, it's, it's paired against this very against type Joel P. West musical score as well. That is, again, taking cues from from some really classic... Asian cinema from samurai films, things like that. You get, I I mentioned Ben Kingsley, but Michelle Yeoh is also in this as a supporting performance. They're very good and it looks fantastic. They get the opportunity to sort of travel away from some of the more urban city environments that the MCU is, is generally around in, with the exception of some of the stuff like Thor and Guardians of the Galaxy, but they get to go into these like big forests and rolling hills and things and very classical sort of... Adventure filmmaking. Yeah, there's a real lushness to it. The thing that's been really... I've been really excited for about this is that it... Even in, in the trailers, it feels different. It does feel different, yes. It feels... It feels... It feels of a type with the MCU stuff. I mean, sure. it certainly takes place within that franchise, but it... I, like I said, it's expanding the mythos in these new directions it certainly has a very a very mythological adventure film vibe you know there's there's a little bit of there's a little bit of indiana jones but in in the sense that i mean that it's sort of the the modern world coming into contact with these mythological legends yeah. and things so there's a bit of that i will say that the finale is too long they should they could have cut 10 minutes from the end battle it just goes on a bit but yeah it's a really really good movie it's one of the better origin stories it sets up a really cool new character that definitely stay around for the post credit scene because I have theories about what it's saying and I think it is setting up the next big arc of the MCU. Certainly it's it's a it's a very fun movie. I next saw Ride the Eagle, which is a comedy directed by Trent O'Donnell, who is the creator of No Activity. It's about this this aimless guy who's kind of approaching middle age. His name's Leaf. He's played by Jake Johnson. He's estranged from his hippie mother Honey, uh, played by Susan Sarandon. And yeah. uh but she dies, and oh. she leaves instructions to him, tasks he has to complete to inherit her lake house. So she, Sarandon appears throughout the movie in these recorded videos where she cool. sort of okay. tries to give him advice and, and connect with him from beyond I, the grave. I was hoping that it wouldn't just be, like, one or two scenes with Susan Sarandon and then she's not in it. Oh, it's more than that. It's more than that. Yeah. She's, she's a constant presence, but she absolutely recorded her stuff in an afternoon. <laughs> she's on the she is sitting on a couch facing the camera for the whole of her appearance yeah 
And, you know, she's a pro. She didn't need more than a couple of takes of this Absolutely. stuff. So I actually wasn't really planning on seeing this. I sort of needed to fill a gap between one movie and another. But it was a nice surprise. I wasn't expecting much, and I was, was pleased by what I did get. It's funny, but in a melancholic kind of way. It's about life and relationships. Johnson is really the centre of the whole thing. It is, you're mostly with him throughout the whole film. Well, you are with him throughout the whole film. I'm actually not even sure there's a single scene that he doesn't appear in, but mostly he's alone with his dog for a lot of the movie, and he will generally just encounter other people either over the phone or for a few brief scenes in real life. J.K. Simmons is here in a small supporting role, which was a pretty good use of him. But it was filmed during COVID, so it was it was sort of a good story to meld to that kind of shooting environment. And this was early COVID as well. This was before all of the stuff that was in place that has allowed productions to get more complicated yeah. again. And it's really him just sort of trying to sort things out, trying to sort himself out, trying to accomplish these tasks that his mother has left him. It's a it's a gorgeous location that they're shooting at, this lake in the in the woods. Um, but there is a lot of use of drone shots, which, I mean, it's pretty clear that this movie was done on the cheap because the drone shots are quite compressed. Mm. The quality of the camera that they've got attached to this thing was not great. But it, it's a sweet and simple movie. And it's the kind of movie that, you know, you'd be, you'd be, it's not appropriate for children. I mean, there's swearing and things in it, but, you know, you, you'd take your, your parents to see it on, on a Mother's Day or a Father's Day or something like that. I mean, it's that kind of a thing. It's just sweet and nice. I also saw for the last movie I'm talking about that I saw in cinemas, I saw Respect. It is a biographical drama directed by Lysel Tommy and it is about the life and career of Aretha Franklin, played by Jennifer Hudson. It's brilliantly acted, but the movie as a whole is trying too much. Hudson is the sh- is the showstopper. She is just sublime. She is she is fully encapsulating Aretha Franklin. She disappears into the role, and the cast around her is really good as well. Especially people like Forrest Whitaker and Marlon Wayans and Mark Maron. They turn up in some really good supporting performances, and there's just good writing, and it's always compelling, but structurally it's too much they needed to narrow in on it they're trying to to cover too much of an arc of her life in too short an amount of time which is kind of is a bit of a paradox because it needed to be shorter than it is it goes on quite a bit but because they're trying to force so much into it, it it becomes a little bit messy and and unfocused they're really trying to take these two parts of her life two different chapters that really seem like they should be two different movies and trying to connect it in the middle. And it, it is disappointing, especially after Rocketman, you know, told me that these musical biopics could be so much more than, than they have been. It is very much a standard musical biopic. Yeah. There's none of that creativity. And for anyone tired of the general arc of musical biopics, you know, the rise, fall and rise again of the artist yeah. at the centre of it, this is absolutely that. But isn't that just like the structure of a biopic in general? Not necessarily. I've seen plenty of biopics that are that break from that. I know, it's been my general experience with them. Well, the musical biopics seem to be pretty specific. Like, yeah. They're, they're, there is the rise, there is the succumbing to arrogance and substance abuse, and then there is their bottoming out and going up again. Yeah. I challenge the audience to name one that doesn't involve any of that. <laughs> yeah. But the, the fall here is too sudden. Again, it really feels like they're blending two different parts of her life. The starting out part and then the substance abuse part in a way that isn't 
particularly clean. How's the singing? Because Aretha Franklin's voice is sort of insurmountable. Oh, the singing's really good. You and you get a lot of it, and and you get a lot of Jennifer Hudson as Aretha Franklin singing. I, I actually, there's I don't think anyone else sings in the movie other than Jennifer Hudson, but you you get a lot of it, and she's good. She sells it. I admit I'm not the most up to date on Aretha Franklin's catalogue. Um, I'm I'm not familiar with a lot of her songs, but certainly the ones that I am familiar with, she she pulled them off. You know, respect obviously being. A big one. Yeah. But the movie sort of avoids some of the thornier stuff that would complicate its narrative. It kind of just wants to zero in on, again, that pretty typical biopic structure. But there is some really complicated and emotionally difficult stuff around the edges of Aretha Franklin's life, even more so than some of the really complicated and emotionally difficult stuff that's depicted in the movie that would just kind of require far too much addressing for them. To, it would complicate their core narrative too much, and so they ignore it. And that I find that to be kind of a little bit irritating, but it's much more successful with the tackling of racism and sexism. Um, there's a reluctance, a real reluctance to show the racism and bigotry experienced by Aretha Franklin, though. And I'm of two minds about that. On the one hand, I really don't need to see a movie full of a black woman being uh, discriminated against by white people. But on the other hand, they... they put it in the movie so much that this is something that she has to overcome that us not seeing much of it explicitly at least is notable well that's the complicated thing when making stories about black historical figures is that mm. you want to show the deference to the person by not using a lot of that language and imagery but yeah. it did they focus happen. a lot more in on the sexism that she suffered domestic abuse that she suffered and that stuff's done really well. But I will say that for as good as the writing generally is, it is sometimes overdone. This is a movie that contains the unironic use of a line, you can't jive God, Jerry, which I want put on a t-shirt, I want mugs made, but it made me cackle in the theatre, and I don't think that was intentional. Merchandise the shit out of this line. But also there is a, a scene that will be probably the scene I remember from this movie, where she's just starting out and Dina Washington comes to see her perform at a club. And Dina Washington, obviously, a, a very famous African-American singer um, that predates Aretha Franklin. And Aretha Franklin's like, oh, you know, she's in she's in presence, so to honour her, I'm going to sing one of her songs. And she, she starts up and she gets, like, maybe a line in. And Dina Washington just stands up furious, flips over the table that she's sitting at, in a, in a series of shots that could have been edited by Michael Bay and screams, Bitch, you don't sing the Queen's songs when the Queen is right in front of you. <laughs> Which apparently did happen, just not to Aretha Franklin, mm. to another singer. Mm. But when you see it played out, it's absurd. Because it is absurd. Yeah. And it kind of interrupts the more serious tone of the rest of the movie. But it was, you know, an outstanding moment. And I... I gotta admit, I was thrilled to find out it was real. <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> anyways, moving on to things I saw at home. I saw Taking Lives. It is a thriller directed by DJ Caruso. It's based on the Michael Pye novel of the same name. It follows an FBI agent named Ileana Scott, played by Angelina Jolie. She is called in to consult on a case in Quebec where a serial killer is killing people and then assuming their identities. Uh, and she finds herself falling for the only witness to one of these murders, James Costa, played by Ethan Hawke. It starts out promising, but it really starts to slip as it goes on. It's fairly meat and potatoes by the end. 
The identity thing is a great creepy sort of idea. It's not utilized enough here though. And there's no atmosphere. Like they should be able to create a, a pretty sinister atmosphere out of this setup, but they don't. It plays tricks, a lot of them. And ultimately it's easy enough to tell who the bad guy is at a certain point. The movie starts to become generic enough that you're like, oh, well, clearly this is the kind of thing that a movie like this would do. But the motive makes no sense as to why the bad guy would be doing this. Ileana is a a shallow character as well. Jolie is good, but there's just not much here. Hawk is excellent, though. He, He gets more stuff to do. He's a lot more animated than Jolie is. But there's this, you know, the standard irritating outsider crap of the local police resenting the FBI being called in and stuff like that. And I just like, I can't even deal with that. You know, it just seems like the most ridiculous pissing contest stuff every time I hear about it, that these people are in charge of, you know, trying to save lives and catch dangerous people. But every time they get a chance, they want to whip it out and measure it. The funny thing about Ethan Hawke is, this is unrelated to that movie, but oftentimes in my YouTube recommendations, uh, it comes up with a video from a couple of years back of Ethan Hawke talking shit about superhero movies, specifically Marvel ones, and every time I see that, I have a little chuckle to myself, because that he's going to be in the Moon Knight series, and hmm. I love that. He held out <laughs> for as long as he could, but they got him eventually. Now we just gotta get Stephen Dorff in there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No one really cares about getting Stephen Dorff casting <laughs> Stephen Dorff anyway. The ending to this movie is just ridiculous. It's very daytime soap opera. It's absurd, and it really ended the movie on a whole sour note for me. I hated it. And Philip Glass is an excellent composer, but maybe not the best choice for this type of movie. It's it doesn't match what's going on here. But it's available for streaming in Australia on Netflix and Stan. If anybody is interested. Next up, I saw The Lady Killers the remake of the 1955 film directed by Alexander McKendrick. This one is directed by Ethan and Joel Cohen, and it is like the original crime comedy. It follows this religious, conservative African-American widow named Marva Munson, played by Irma P. Hall, and she rents out a spare room to this garrulous Southern professor, G.H. Daw, (laughs) played by Tom Hanks but does not realise that he is using her basement to dig a tunnel to rob the nearby casino with a band of thieves that he has recruited. This is very funny. It's a great script, and Hanks and Hall are just powerhouses. Hanks is so good as this extremely loquacious southern gentleman with the manner of a used car salesman. Yeah. And Hall is just outstanding as this cranky old lady. Tom Hanks used to do a lot of comedy. And he's just, more and more, he stopped doing it as he's gotten older. And I really, I you know, that's disappointing because he's yeah. so good at it, you know. He is. I love, if you guys ever seen The Burbs? I don't believe so. I think I've seen bits and pieces of it. Oh, it's so great. It's like this really dark comedy where Tom Hanks and his neighbours suspect that the the new people that have moved on to, the new family that has moved on to their street are serial killers. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I've seen bits and pieces of this movie. Yeah, I just wish he would do more of it because he's so good at it. And I've seen this movie, The Lady Killers, and he is, he's like this disturbed Colonel Sanders. Yeah. There are a lot of African-American stereotypes at work here. Obviously, the, the cranky old black lady is, is a stereotype. The the sort of way that the Coens write the black characters within this movie is, is are very stereotypical. 
And I'm kind of two minds of this because there are some there are some things like Marlon Wayans who's has a performance here that is constantly veering way too close to being an, an, a negative you know stereotype. Mm. But on the other hand, there's a kind of lionizing of elderly black women in a way that is really interesting and kind of fun that she just by being sort of who she is, totally upends their plans, like, almost unintentionally. Yeah. And that's really enjoyable. And the third act is just excellent when everything goes to shit. It is a little bit sudden, and it's a, it's a change in mood for the movie, but it is very Coen Brothers. Uh, the middle sags, though, the, stu- the stuff where they're planning the heist and executing the heist, it's all very familiar. It relies on the dialogue and the performances, which are good, but, you know, you do need narrative to support that stuff, yeah. and it, it loses it there. And there are a few missteps in the humour. I mentioned the Marlon Wayans character, but there's just a I, there's an IBS gag that goes on for way too long. There are a, a great use of songs, though, especially like gospel music from from Marvelous Church, and it's really well shot. It was shot by Roger Deakins, so of oh. course it, it was well shot. But it's available for streaming on Disney Plus if anybody is interested. I watched Hellboy, obviously, but then I watched Hellboy Two: The Golden Army which is it like its forebearer, a superhero fantasy movie directed by Guillermo del Toro, based on the comics by Mike Mignola. In this one, Hellboy, played by Ron Perlman, and his team contend with the elven prince Nuada, played by Luke Goss. He's looking for this crown that's going to give him control over an indestructible robot army that will wipe out humanity, and so Hellboy and his buddies have got to stop him. This is a lesser movie, but it is more visually creative. It has this pivot from the first one, the cosmic horror of the first one, to sort of classical fairy tale style magic. And that's neat. It shows the malleability of Hellboy as a franchise. But the execution's off. You really miss the gothic tone of the first movie. The urban fantasy stuff is kind of kind of dumb in the way that they execute it. There's just too much silly humour. It never lands. The characters are just yucking it up the whole time in, in constant search of the next gag in a way that feels really grating and not necessarily much like they were in the first film. And you get this introduction of this new guy, Johan Krauss, this new team leader who is is just a walking comic relief and not a good one. And Nuada is not that interesting as a villain either. We should have spent a lot more time with, with the elves as a civilization, and we don't. And instead we just get this this one-dimensional, you know, elf bigot who's wandering around talking about how we need to wipe out humanity because we're destroying the planet, which, you know, fair, but yeah. not particularly interesting. He's out of line, but he's right. Oh, speaking of, Harley, you know, your line in our SWAT episode... Uh, the frog's out of line, but he's white. The French must have heard that. That must be why they withdrew their ambassadors. Hey, look, I'm not saying that it was 100% of the reason. I'm just saying it was a drop in the bucket. It's a, <laughs> look, it's a contributing factor, and I would like... What did that little shit say about us? Fuck Australia. And I would like to say to the people of France, I don't regret a second of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on. The, the personal crises that all the characters have to face in this are pretty tortured and unnecessary as well. But I do like that it brings that it brings Abe Sapien to the fore a lot more yeah. than it did in the first movie. And Doug Jones gets to use his actual voice this time rather than being dubbed in post. There are a few really cool moments and ideas in it as well. And uh, But frustratingly, it, it starts setting up some unfinished story threads that they were going to work for in a unrealized third film. 
that was going to be the end of the trilogy, uh, and that stuff's just kind of left hanging. But Del Toro is having the time of his life with all of the designs, the world designs, the creature designs. You get more than one Doug Jones character. I mean, he's Abe Sapien, but he's also turning up as a few other characters as well, including an angel of death in a really, really cool get-up. Look up that that character because he looks awesome. Like The thing is, you've got Doug Jones already in your cast. You yeah. use him! Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of the angel of death. My God, what a Del yeah. Toro looking thing. It is a bit strained because they're going into the room where the Angel of Death is and Abe Sapien's like, I'll wait out here. And there's like no real reason for him to do it. But Doug Jones can't be in two places at the same time. But this is filmmaking, my man. He can mm. be. Uh, anyways, it's, it's available for streaming in Australia on Binge and Foxtel now if anybody is interested. I next watched Hellboy Sword of Storms. It's an animated direct-to-video film that was released between the two live-action films. It's directed by Phil Weinstein and Tad Stones. And in it, Hellboy and his team must stop the demonic brothers Thunder and Lightning from breaking free of a magical prison where they are, they are imprisoned in a sword uh, where they were trapped by a Japanese samurai. But they managed to get around this by possessing a Japanese academic and uh, making him set in motion steps to free them. And Hellboy has got to try and stop them, but in doing so is is transported to a fantasy land where he discovers the backstory of this whole thing. And if that makes no sense whatsoever, you're right, it doesn't. So Tad Stones and I have a history. I pretty much knew exactly what to expect of these two Hellboy animated movies the minute that I found out that he was involved because he was the director on the Aladdin direct-to-video sequels and the Atlantis direct-to-video sequels, neither of which impressed me greatly. It's it's kind of weird because it, it's got a returning cast. I mean, Ron Perlman is voicing Hellboy, Selma Blair is back, Doug Jones is back, John Hurd is back in the second one, but it doesn't really seem obvious whether it's supposed to be set in the same world or not. In fact, I'd say that it maybe seems like it isn't. Um, set in the same continuity just because of some of the, you know, there, there are these supporting characters that are, are not present in other, uh, in the live action films and it just seems to mess with some of the continuity in some weird ways. But the story of this is just a morning cartoon thing. It's not, it's not worth being a, a film. It really feels like it should be a 22 minute episode of television. And it, as I said, it makes very little sense. There's a lot of dull exposition. The action is uninspired, it drags on and on and on, but it is blessedly short. And Hellboy in the fantasy Japan setting that he finds himself stuck in is pretty okay. There are a lot of encounters with what I think are monsters from Japanese folklore, which is a neat idea, uh, but the animation just looks cheap. The designs are in the comic style, which is nice. That was fun to see that in, in, in action, but it looks cheap. And... You know, maybe they were testing the water because the first Hellboy movie did not do great at the box office, but it did really well on home video. Mm. And I wonder whether this was maybe them testing the water to see whether that could be replicated enough to justify another Hellboy live action film. And if that is the the reasoning, then I'm fine. I'll let it pass. But it's available for streaming in Australia on Prime Video if anybody's interested. Of course, watch the sequel, Hellboy Blood and Iron, this time directed by Victor Cook and Tad Stones. And in this one, the gang investigates a haunted house that used to belong to... Well, they call us something different, but it 
So they call her in the movie Elizabeth Andrushko, but in real life, they're referring to the real life figure of Elizabeth Bathory, who was a real life Hungarian noblewoman and serial killer who killed 650 people to bathe in their blood because she thought it was going to keep her young. And it didn't, shock horror. Well, of course, within Hellboy's universe, it did because she's a vampire. Yeah. But Professor Broom thought he got her as a young man, but now there's this haunted house where spooky goings-on are happening, and he and the, the rest of the team have to go there to find out what's going on and find that there's a plot to revive this woman. Obviously, Professor Broom's presence, here played by John Hurt once again, suggests that if it is in continuity with the live-action films, this is taking place before the first movie. Yeah, which is actually quite common when it comes to Hellboy storytelling. There's lots of prequels and stuff like that. But this is even worse than the first one. It has an aimless, flailing plot. It doesn't cohere. There are just so many disparate disparate elements and parts to it that never come together as a satisfying whole. And once again, it makes very little sense. I don't understand the motives of any of the villains in this thing, other than, I suppose, Elizabeth Andrushko, who just wants to come back to life and kill some more people. Does most of it take place in this a haunted location? In the house, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's actually really cool, because I'll get into it more in our deep dive, but... That's more in line to what the comics do. Yeah, it is like Scooby-Doo, but not as good. Violent Scooby-Doo, but not as good. And Scooby-Doo itself is pretty violent. It's just not gory. Well, yeah, but like Scooby, Scooby never has to stop like a monster that's bathing in people's blood. Um, I don't know sure. what new Scooby-Doo does go to some places. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I so come on, give give us CW, give us the supernatural style live action Scooby Doo where they need to stop a monster that's bathing in people's blood. Come we on, keep begging um, for it, and you don't. It can be a sexy monster, CW. It can be a sexy monster. It just has to be a monster. But the characters are all used very poorly. They split the team up to go and explore on their own, and that's just not what you looking you're looking for in this team dynamic. Um, and it has a real nothing of a finale that makes the whole thing feel totally insignificant. And it is again hinting at the same unfinished plot line that the live action films started to set up. But it made me think, is this a kid's thing? Because it's really, really goofy in a way that children's cartoons tend to be. But it also features naked vampire ladies killing people and bathing in their blood. And Going for the teen boy audience. Yeah. Well, the stupid teen boy audience. (laughs) (laughs) Not the discerning teen boy audience. No, no. The discerning teen boy audience have already found one of the many other better naked vampire lady movies. Prime Video is streaming this one as well. Lastly for this week, I saw The Girl Next Door. It is a romantic dramedy directed by Luke Greenfield. And are you two aware of this film? Vaguely. I've heard the name The name rings a bell. So it's about this shy, nerdy high school. Don't look it up because I want to. I want yeah, your live reaction. It it's about this shy, nerdy high school senior named Matthew. He's played by Emil Hirsch, and this new, extremely attractive next door neighbor, just like a year older than him, moves in next door. Her name is Danielle. She's played by Alicia Cuthbert, and they start dating. But he finds out that she was a porn star, and her sleazy producer Kelly, played by Timothy Oliphant wants her back. This is a bizarre film. I was expecting a stupid sex comedy in the vein of Eurotrip, but instead it's like weirdly dramatic and kind of sweet and empathetic in a kind of confused way, but a genuine way nonetheless. Mm. It's kind-hearted, but time has left it behind. Yeah. It has a pretty 
complicated portrayal of what has become complicated, a complicated portrayal of sex work. There's this feeling that Danielle has to be saved and told she's good enough. You know, she she's she's good enough that she doesn't have to do this. Don't um, worry, you no longer have to wallow in sin anymore now that yeah. me, a man, is here to redeem you. Yeah. Ugh. Now, now this is not to say that there isn't exploitation in the no, porn industry. Course, sure. I mean, that's pretty well documented. But there is a reductive view of the way that sex work is presented in this movie that, that makes it a, a different watch in 2021 than it would have been in 2004. But the relationship between the two of them at the centre of it is really nice and genuine and sweet. You believe it and you root for it. Hirsch and Cuthbert are both very charming and they work very well together. And it is a comedy, but it's a soft comedy. It's not like a ha-ha-ha, laugh-out-loud comedy. It's more just amusing with a dramatic spine that is the real focus of the whole thing. Oliphant is pretty good as the sleazy porn producer. And when he enters the movie, it, it kicks off a... Not a, not a crime subplot per se, but sort of structured like one, um, that he is presented almost like a mob boss <laughs> within, within the world of the film. That is, I'm not saying that he is presented as a, as a mob boss, um, in the film, but, but the position in the narrative that he mm. occupies is the one that would be occupied in a mob boss in, in most other, other movies that, um, he is this sort of threatening person that, keeps pressuring Matthew into doing work for him and favours for him that ultimately get out of control. It has an ultra-weird finale that strays into some uncomfortable territories. It doesn't... I I honestly don't know if it crosses a line or not. I don't know if it tiptoes past that red line. It initially seems like it has, but then it pulls back at the last moment, and I'm not really sure where it ends up. But suffice to say, now there would be many think pieces. Mm. <laughs> But it has an awesome licensed soundtrack that is used very well. Stuff like Under Pressure and The Killing Moon. It's it's a very peculiar film. And if anyone wants to check it out for themselves, they can find it on Netflix and Prime Video in Australia. But that's me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? Okay, so to begin with, we've got Tubi, you see. And <laughs> you there, bro? Hmm? Oh, your face is being distorted. You look like a monkey. Oh, okay. Okay. Anyway, that just distracted me for a second so we've got i didn't notice a difference (laughs) i'm just kidding i'm sorry it was right there i had to take it yeah (laughs) ooh ooh ah ah so we've got tubi to reiterate a third time and our dad in his infinite kindness and wisdom likes putting on shitty horror movies for us all to watch because as he says hey now you can talk about it on the podcast your family sounds so fun. <laughs> yeah, they are. You need to come over one of these days and we'll put on a shitty horror movie and rip it to shreds together. You know that its title's gonna have Amityville in there somewhere. This movie, <laughs> preempted by Harley, is called Amityville Scarecrow. It follows two families? What? Can I just stop for a second? How many Amityville movies have they made at this point? Actually, you know what? It's... I will read to you. A list that I have here. And I want to preface it. It's too many. I want to preface this with not all of them have anything to do with the Amityville horror. You know? That thing that the Warrens make. There have been two released this year. There were four released last year. Yeah. I want to read you some of the, the names of these movies. And I want to see the light leave your eyes. I can already see one that I... Yeah. Amityville Clown, Amityville Cop, (laughs) Amityville Cult, 
Amityville Hex, Amityville Karen, Amityville Shark House, Amityville Vibrator. Stop there for a moment. <laughs> Don't stop me when I'm on a roll. When John said, when John read that list to me and said Amityville Shark House, my Im- immediate thought was that it's a shark who, oh, it's a ha- haunted house that is also a ghost shark. That was my uh, impression. Amityville Shark House as a concept, that is clearly taking the piss, but anyway. Amityville in the hood. Amityville oh, Germany. Oh, come on, that's stealing it from Leprechaun. You can't do that. It's it derivative. Is. The Amityville Legend 2021 and the Amityville Moon. See, that's a werewolf surely movie. Surely the Amityville Moon is the moon we all share. No. For, what do you I mean, think no? That... They clearly made the distinction that is the Amityville Moon. <sighs> you gotta learn to listen, Harley. The Amityville Harvest. Is the Amityville Vibrator like a porn parody? I think it's a comedy. Because I, I, like, I'm just looking at the IMDb description of this movie. I think it's a sex comedy. Kathy moves into a new home and soon comes into contact with a vibrator with ancient evil powers. Two researchers must locate this possessed item before Kathy and anyone else she encounters becomes a sex slave for Satan. Yeah, so it's in sort of the John Waters filth mm. style of things. But does it come from when they were still trying to use those to cure hysteria in that really sexist way this came out in 2020 no i mean what did Did you list amityville island no i didn't yes amityville island is on there amityville island surely is simply long island (laughs) it it has nothing to do with with the amityville house except it's um neither does amityville scarecrow well amityville island is about a survivor of amityville house who goes to live on an island on a small island where she discovers that Bizarre genetic experiments are carried out on humans and animals in a secret women's prison. Okay, so... You know what? Watch all of these. I want, like, a... No. <laughs> Save me from Smallville, but the Amityville series. I'm going to tell you right I'm now. I'm reading the list off, the, no. off of IMDb. I don't know if all of these are on Tubi, but I can check if like me to. Um, but Amityville Scarecrow. I draw the line at Amityville Dildo. Thank you. It's Amityville Vibrator, Whatever. Holly. Again, you got to learn to listen. Holly, they name these things for a very specific reason, and if you're not going to respect them as mu- that much... What, you don't want to watch Amityville Vibrator with your family? But anyway, you know Amityville the Scarecrow. It, the synopsis here on IMDb is completely full of shit, so I'm going to just, you know, synopsize it myself. It follows two families of indeterminate nationality... This is Amityville in the UK, I think. Okay, so... It's never clear. The, uh, Let me just know. They speak note, with shush. British accents. Yes, they do. But they say, when we moved over to the UK, which within that language makes it seem like they are not talking about where they currently are. But... Okay, so... Sorry, moved over from the UK. No, no, they moved Again, to the it's... UK and now they're back? From the UK. But this is very clearly England. It's not clear. But anyway. But how old are these people? Because if they moved to the UK and, like, how long did they stay there? Because why would they have accents if... See, you'll you'll just... Ah! 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 So. We need the official Amityville series timeline. I want to know how this fits into the continuity. These aren't all part of a series, Lawson. (laughs) This isn't a cinematic... It's not the uh, ACU, Amityville Cinematic Universe. Okay, so this follows two families... They've had some issues in the past you, because... Just let I'm, me I'm, finish. I'm sorry, but can you just imagine those poor people, that those poor six people 
who were shot and killed by their family members. And then they made this absurd feature film franchise out of it that includes stuff like Amityville Shark House and Amityville Vibrator. Like, what a what a thing. Blame the Warrens. I'm, I'm curious about that Shark House one. Sure, but okay, getting back to Amer- um, uh, Amityville Scarecrow. <laughs> Anyway, this family has shitty stuff happen in the past. They're estranged. They've come here to this abandoned summer camp where that their mother owned before she died. And one of the one of the sisters wants to sell it and just be done with the whole thing. Everyone can get half of the money. Wash the hands of it. The other is starting to have these weird feelings having arrived there. They are unsure what to do about this place it's they want to turn it into a functioning camp so people start oh to phrase it like that is incorrect um there's a scarecrow uh, killing people there's a scarecrow killing people but it happens all in the back half of the movie (laughs) oh except for that i'm going to spoil except for that opening scene except for the opening scene which features an actress who can't seem to close her mouth but (laughs) <laughs> it's not Kristen Stewart. This is God bless that it's not her. You know, this is some of the. If if I was a really famous act on the level of like Tom Hanks or or one of these people, I think it'd be fun to just do a walk on role in one of these really like Amityville Scarecrow kind of level things, just to really confuse people. <laughs> sure, there's a just torpedo your career. See, you know know what I would do. See, would you do have like to a... be at the point where it wouldn't torpedo your career. Mm. Nothing is That's going true. to derail Tom Hanks. Yes. But what I would do definitely would be do like a like a ten episode storyline on neighbours. Mm. Mm. We know you would. You would want to be the person who ruins her life. <laughs> well you have spoiled my life. You have destroyed my happiness. You need to see Susan. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't want to ruin Susan's life. Susan's great. You want to watch Cole do it in person. You want to recreate that scene where she screams at Cole. You destroyed my happiness. But anyway, moving on. I'm going to spoil this movie for you because I don't care. I maybe care a little too much. I tell a lie. They steal an entire plot point for fucking Batum from Nightmare on Elm Street. A child predator worked at this camp. A bunch of the parents found out, and they burnt burnt the pedo to death. This is stolen almost verbatim from the description that the mother in Nightmare on Elm Street gives to her daughter. This is a shit movie. The, the moment they started describing it, I was like, oh no, no you don't. This movie... I think I made a joke just before that happened where, oh yeah, they... No, you said it. You said, oh, they burn them to death. And then the woman says, oh, yeah, we burnt them to death. Oh, God. This movie, Just... like that spoiler suggests, implies sexual assault, but is not remotely capable of even addressing the topic. Really, Harley? That that surprises me. I would have thought that the direct-to-video Amityville horror movie about a scarecrow killing people would be exactly the kind of story primed to do a respectful take on sexual assault. Specifically childhood sexual assault. The scarecrow design is admittedly cool. The The mask is actually pretty dope. And because it l- looks like it's decayed and it's got like 
teeth and it's got, in like, it. burlap stuff. It's but it's clearly a dude in an outfit. Yeah, like that's sort of the thing you can't get past. And whenever they're doing sort of the chasing around thing, when when they're doing the chasing around thing, ah, I'm running through the woods so you don't murder me. Whenever they hit the scarecrow with something. It's so they clearly gently. don't want to hurt the person who's in the <laughs> outfit. And I'm just watching them sort of lazily whap this guy. And I'm like, you can edit this to make it look like you're hitting them harder. Why is this so difficult? Like, A baby could have edited this movie better by just slamming their head down on the keyboard. For the majority of the movie, I actually thought that the reveal was that it was a person in a suit. Yeah. There to kill them uh, oh. like a scooby or like a scooby-doo kind of thing no, like a like a ghost face uh, uh. sort of thing you know how ghost face isn't the most physically capable um slasher yeah. villain i thought the scarecrow was going to be the same but no, no this scarecrow is like teleporting in between scarecrows this is a supernatural almost? spirit possessing these scarecrows and it's jumping between scarecrows like when one one scarecrow body has been hit by a car it just jumps into another scarecrow body and is just standing on top of this the kills are lazy but i do like that the scarecrow is using a scythe Mm. to do it that's a very cool visual um the movie brings out like these blue lights to try and give a little artistry to the piece but it ends up just looking cheap they're using a smoke machine. I mean, obviously they are. You can see the smoke coming out of one specific spot uh, where they've hidden the machine. You can't see mm. the machine, but you know it's you know it's coming from a machine. Uh, because apparently they decided, oh, we'll start the machine while we're shooting this shot. Not setting it up beforehand to get sort of like that low level of fog on the ground. Would it surprise you to find out that the writer of Amityville Scarecrow has also made two other Scarecrow films. <laughs> Curse of the Scarecrow and Bride of Scarecrow. Huh, what do you know? The Scarecrow got hitched. They've got a movie called House on Elm Lake. Mm, it's shameless. Utterly shameless. It's it's utterly shameless, yeah. It's not good. None of the actors are any good. They're not even remotely trying. No. there's only Not even remotely. Okay, there's only one actor who's trying, and you can tell they recorded themselves... Uh, with a webcam in an afternoon. Mm. <laughs> and they're the only actor who tries, but she she's not even that good. Um, Avoid this. Obviously avoid this. It's on Tubi because Tubi doesn't pay to have stuff on their service. Well, I think that they do, but not very much. No. Utter, utter crap. And I, I don't like saying that, that. Talking about this movie has sapped my energy. I don't like it. It's bad. It's I'm going to just... be very low-key for the rest of this episode, I think. <laughs> it's just very bad. Um, Maybe we need to talk about an Amityville movie every week. <laughs> Maybe you can go fuck yourself. <laughs> See? There he is. He's back. Also, uh, we have watched a movie that John and I have been quite excited to get around to watching. We watched Cruella. Yes. Uh, This is... Lawson's already talked about this on the podcast before, so we'll not take up too much time discussing it here. Uh, It is the origin story for Cruella DeVille. Yes. If you want to hear my thoughts, you can go back to episode 87, the Scooby-Doo episode. Uh, Played by Emma Stone, and I loved this. This is great. It's it's punk as hell. It's what happens when you get the Devil Wears Prada, but smush it up with Joker. Uh, My assessment that Cruella is... 
someone who girl bosses so hard they become the Joker is actually true, not just a fun statement. I just love the energy that this movie has. Mm. And it's trying something different. It's not filmed like a Disney movie. Like, it doesn't look like a Disney movie. It feels like it has a real edge to it. Yeah. And that goes a long way for me really enjoying it. My favorite scene has to be the the punk show at the fountain after the fall line was destroyed. It's such a great yeah. aesthetic moment. Emma Stone is fantastic. Just outstanding. The use of color and costume design, they better get awards for that costume design. Just hands down. Whenever Emma Stone and Emma Thompson are on screen, they are desperately trying to blow everyone else out of the water. It's incredible. They are wielding their talent like battle axes. They're like Vikings going into war. It's incredible. I like this a lot. The score is also really good, very evocative, and I can't wait to see what happens next. They uh, don't make her terribly noble, either. I feel like she is definitely just gonna get worse over time. She's certainly more noble than traditional Cruella de Vil, but... Yeah, they are kind of pulling her punches in the whole, you know, skinning Dalmatian puppies to make a coat thing. I'm I'm still at the end of that movie, like, really not sure how they're going to handle that if they ever get around to it in the sequel. Mm. I feel like she's just going to get worse after the events of this movie. Yeah. She's just going to get worse and worse because there's, in terms of her behaviour. There's also really good supporting cast here. The two blokes who play her hench people are really good. Joel Fry and Paul Walter Hauser. Yeah, they're really good. Mark Strong is here, and it's nice to see him and stuff. I always like to see him when he pops up. Um, and he plays a very crucial and integral role here. I don't know, I just, I really liked this. It has to be one of my favorite live-action adaptations they've done so far. Because it is so drastically different. They're breaking new territory here. And adapting yeah. the character rather than the story. And I don't, I haven't seen the original 101 Dalmatians in a long time, but... Cruella de Vil is just the most interesting character in those movies. The two yeah. leads in those movies don't impress me whatsoever. They're just normal people put in this really messed up situation. Whereas Cruella de Vil is a real character. So I think focusing on Cruella was a really good choice. Not only from a marketing standpoint, but from a storytelling standpoint. Uh, that is on Disney+. Plus. You no longer have to pay the premiere access fee for it. And I'll be damned to hell if I ever do that. <laughs> we also have started watching the season three of The Australian Masked Singer. Uh, I always like watching this show. It's a lot of fun. It's basically a guessing game. Uh, the judges are given clues to ascertain who is in the mask and who is singing. It's a very standard setup. There are versions of the show across the world. Some of the costumes here are truly disturbing. There's a baby, just like a big baby. Giant head, bulbous eyes. I hate it. I hate it so much. And there's also one called Dolly, who just looks like the baby. I hate it. I hate it so much. There's a kebab uh, that has the face of a friend. I like the kebab. Um... Because it looks like there's a lot of effort put into that costume. Mm. There's a volcano. That costume was dope. Uh, and was Vinnie Jones. Which is surprised me because I didn't know he was in the country. Uh, also, 
there was one called The Duster, which is perhaps the laziest costume I've seen on the show so far, and that was George Columbaris. Famed wage stealer. Yes. Uh, it, they had to auto-tune, auto-tune his voice they, fierce. My god. They've never... It, it's the worst that I've ever heard them do it. They... They, they smoothed his vocals something horrid. It felt like a robot playing a keyboard. Shake it up, baby. Here we go, Bend over, let me see. Shake your tail feather. Bend over, let me see. Shake your tail feather. Come on, let me see. Shake your tail feather. Come on, let me see. Shake your tail feather. Oh, come on. They do it on some of the people who aren't trained or confident act confident singers, but they've never done it this egregiously. I don't know, I just like the costumes, I love the guessing game, I have some people who I think certain people are, but I'll hold those guesses pretty close to the chest. I'm like 90% sure of one of them. Uh, but some of the others more complicated, I think. Yeah, and finally... Uh, the last thing we will talk about this week, we watched Dark Shadows, which stars Johnny Depp, Michelle Pfeiffer, Ava Green, Helena Bonham Carter, Jackie L. Haley, Johnny Lee Miller, Bella Heathcote, Chloe Grace Moretz, and Christopher Lee, as well as Alice Cooper. It follows imprisoned vampire Barnabas Collins, who is set free and returns to his ancestral home, where his dysfunctional descendants are in need of his protection. This is so Tim Burton. And falls into some of the falls into some of the holes that he often does. This is incredibly gothic, but unfocused. There is there's a romance subplot between Barnabas and Victoria, the new nanny for the children in the Collins household, and it isn't established well enough. There isn't enough time spent developing that relationship. And there's not really any chemistry between Bella Heathcote and Johnny Depp. However, there is incredible chemistry between Ava Green and Johnny Depp. Ava Green plays Angelique Beauchard, the new sort of hot dog in town, so to speak. The new hot dog? Man, I've just got no energy. That Top dog. Top dog, I don't care. Hot dog? Anyway, she's the witch who cursed him. She's the witch who cursed him. (laughs) She's the witch who cursed him. And she is an absolute battle axe of a person. She's obsessed with Barnabas to an incredibly unhealthy degree. This is a very uneven film, but it's not the actor's fault. There are decisions made within the story and the script that aren't necessarily the best. It's a little too long as well. A little too episodic. And sort of gets bogged down in making everything, you know, horror-centric, I guess. Uh, Chloe Grace Moretz is really fun in there. So is Helena Bonham Carter. And I wish Michelle Pfeiffer was in more of this movie. Because she plays the matriarch of the Collins household and is incredible. Uh, Overall, this movie is pretty good and has a really great Alice Cooper cameo in it. That's what we've seen within the week. Now we're going to play for you the trailer to Hellboy. Whoa. 
Watch your hands and elbows. Pardon? <sighs> Welcome to the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defense. There are things that go bump in the night, Agent Myers. And we are the ones who bump back. Hellboy. Well, come on in. Meet the rest of the family. Abraham Sapien. Liz Schumann. It's a beautiful name. Don't worry, Boy Scout. She'll take care of you. These freaks. They give me the creeps. Really? Every time the media gets a look at him, they come running to me. I'm running out of life. If there's trouble, all us freaks have is each other. What the hell is that? Something big. In the absence of light, darkness prevails. Sixty years ago, they tried to destroy the world. They're back. Behind this door, ancient evil. Oh well, let me go in and say hi. gonna be okay how fake can it be that was the trailer for hellboy it is a fantasy superhero movie with cosmic horror elements directed by guillermo del toro and it is based on the hellboy comics created by mike mignola specifically the first arc seeds of destruction by mignola and john byrne it follows the exploits of the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defense, also known by its acronym BPRD. The Bureau was created after, at the tail end of World War II, an Allied task force accompanied by paranormal researcher Professor Trevor Broom Brutenholm, played here by Kevin Trainer and as an old man by John Hurt, stopped an attempt by the Nazis to open a portal beyond our own world. With the help of the unkillable Russian mystic Grigory Rasputin, played by Carol Roden, the Nazis try to open a dimensional portal to release the Ogdru Jihad, a collection of Lovecraftian monsters known in English as the Seven Gods of Chaos, into our world. Broom and the Allies prevent it, but not before something unexpected travels through the portal. A baby demon, complete with red skin, horns, and a tail. Recognising that he could be raised to be good, Broom takes him in, and he grows up to be known as Hellboy, played by Ron Perlman, about as all-American as a demon originally intended to bring about the end of days could be. With his unusual colleagues, Ape Sapien, a fishman with psychic abilities played by Doug Jones but voiced by an uncredited David Hyde Pierce, and Liz Sherman, a human woman with the belly-controlled ability to summon fire played by Selma Blair, Hellboy and the BPRD protect our planet from paranormal threats, all the while keeping their very existence a secret. When Rasputin returns after 60 years in cosmic limbo and prepares to open the portal to the Ogdru Jihad once again, Hellboy and his team, including their new CIA handler John Myers, played by Rupert Evans, must stop him. But it won't be so easy. 
Hellboy was originally summoned to destroy the world, and to save us now, he must resist his own unholy destiny and also contend with his not-so-secret crush on Liz and the fact that she and Myers have started to make googly eyes at each other. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what our opinion of Hellboy is. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Three, two, one, go. I like this movie pretty well. It it doesn't do enough that is different from it. It, it doesn't have that much variation in it, and I think it gets to certain plot points a little late. However, I must applaud the style, the performance from Ron Perlman, and sort of the just general gothic, grim nature of the film. You ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. This is perhaps one of the less impressive Guillermo del Toro undertakings, but it does have a lot of artistry behind it. The design of Hellboy is extremely well translated. The world created is suitably cosmic, but there are certain adaptational changes that do hold it back from being a truly great Hellboy adaptation. Alright, you got me queued up, Sean. Yep, three, two, one, go. I really like this movie. I saw it in 2008 when the second film came out on DVD. I bought the two-film box set, and I did not get it then. I really did not like it, but I dig it now. I love the cosmic horror of it all. I love the cool creature design and the world design. It's got some problems, but it is, I think, an interestingly different kind of film from the superhero movies that we tend to get. So let's start off with a production history. I have my notes here. The creator of the comic series, Mike Mignola and Guillermo del Toro, were close collaborators on this. They pitched it to a whole bunch of studios who noped out really quickly. They didn't like the title. They didn't like the the connection to hell. This was also an issue when Mignola was trying to pitch the comic originally. It's why DC turned it down. It was because of the hell connection. And studios didn't like the idea of Ron Perlman as Hellboy either. And they kept trying to alter it as part of negotiations. I have a quote here from Del Toro. An executive said to me, what about a regular actor who gets angry and turns into Hellboy? I go... That's not very good. Then they would say, what if you call him Hellboy and he comes from hell and all that, but he looks like a guy? Then they would suggest things like, can he have a Hellmobile? Can he have a dog? A pet dog that comes from hell and is red? It's funny when you say it, but it's not funny when it happens. Hmm. The movie was ultimately picked up by the independent studio Revolution Studios. Del Toro allegedly turned down the directing job on Prisoner of Azkaban, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, to do this. Del Toro always saw it as an old-school Ray Harryhausen movie. Mm. He even approached Harryhausen to teach the animators how to create those kinds of creatures and movement and things, but Harryhausen declined because he didn't like the violence of it. Mm. Uh, He got a little bit grumpy about the the direction that movies went in his old age, and so he was not up for it. But Del Toro did make a few changes from the books, for instance, in the comic series, everyone knows about the BPRD. They're not trying to keep it a secret. Broom dies very early in the comics. There is no flirtation with Liz. Myers is a brand new character created for the film. But Del Toro had always envisioned Perlman. In fact, he wrote the script with him in mind. And he and Mignola both independently suggested him as the correct choice for Hellboy. Well, he's the perfect choice, naturally. But Screen Rant says that 
The studio pushed for people like Dwayne Johnson, Nicolas Cage, and Vin Diesel. Maybe The Rock? I could see, I could the, see rock, the Rock, but... but I can't see Vin Diesel doing it. Cage is too small, I think. Physical stature. Hot take, Dwayne Johnson would have been better than Ron Perlman. I could see that. I can see that. Okay, I need you to explain your reasoning to me because I like. We'll Ron get Norman into Hellboy. we'll get into that because I actually I think Hellboy himself is the weakest part of Hellboy. Sure, so we'll get into that. But the studio apparently also pushed for Diesel as Abe Sapien. No, gotta be Doug Jones. Vin Diesel is just the wrong casting for that kind of character. You know, if you want to put him in the movie, have him as you know one of the. PRD people. Have him as that weird guy with the knives or whatever. Don't have him as... You don't take Vin Diesel and put him under all of that makeup. Hmm. One, it's not something that he's used to acting with. And two, he just doesn't have that experience. Abe Sapien is far too loquacious a character. Doug Jones was cast, ultimately, as Abe Sapien. But David Hyde Pierce was hired after filming to dub him over in post because the studio wanted... They wanted a bigger name than Doug Jones, and I don't know what they thought they were getting with the blistering star power of Fraser's brother, but... (laughs) (laughs) They were trying to get that sitcom audience. But Doug Jones was ultimately allowed to do the voice in the sequel and in the animated sequels as well, and David Hyde Pierce was actually a big part of that. I have a quote here from Doug Jones... David Hyde Pierce is a consummate gentleman. When he came in to do the voice over me for the first time and he saw and heard my performance on film, he backed away and said, why am I here? He ended up doing the job he was hired to do, but in the end he refused to take a credit in the film. He didn't show up to the premiere and he didn't do any press for the film. When asked why, his answer was out of respect to Doug Jones. He didn't want to take anything away. Nobody does that in Hollywood. We're an ego-driven town. He has a very giving and humble attitude. He's become a hero of mine. I owe him a lot. Pierce was actually approached before Doug Jones was to do the animated movies. And Pierce turned them down and told them to go to talk to Doug Jones instead. Pierce was pretty much just imitating what Doug Jones did on the set with his performance. That's really nice of him. Mm. Like Jones said in the quote, you don't see that a lot. Ron Perlman's makeup took four hours to apply every morning. Jones took five to seven, yeah, depending on whether he was shirtless or not. But Perlman later put all the makeup on again to fulfill the wish for a Make-A-Wish kid with leukemia. And there's photos out there of that. The kid had the wish to hang out with Hellboy for a day. And so Perlman put all the makeup back on and did it. Um, Even looking around that big hand yeah. and everything. But while filming, Perlman did injure himself in a stunt. He broke a rib. He was asked later on if it was true, and he said, quote, Yes, but it was just one rib. I have lots more. <laughs> he seems to just be Badass. that kind of guy, you know? He just gets on with it. The sequence was me chasing Samael, the monster that I'm chasing through the whole movie, onto a moving train. But the train was moving towards us in this case. In most movies, it's moving away. So I had to jump onto a train that was coming toward me in one take. I usually timed it so I hit the train before the train hit me, but there was one take where I took an inordinately big jump because I was tired of shooting the fucking sequence, and I thought, okay, maybe if I'm a really good boy and I do it so dramatically that Guillermo will finally move on. But the train hit me before I hit it. I was perfectly willing to keep acting, even though I smarted, but out of the corner of my eye I could see the DP was operating one of the four cameras and it was distracting to me. Finally I heard, cut, what's wrong? And the DP said, I don't think he's supposed to be crying in this sequence. 
<laughs> he didn't even notice that he was crying. That's awesome. Uh, I love Ron Perlman. He's just story. got a... He, he, he is also a consummate professional. Hmm. The movie was released in the United States on April the 2nd, 2004. It was distributed domestically there by Revolution Studios. Its widest release was in 3,043 theatres, and it opened number one against Walking Tall, Home on the Range, and The Prince and Me. Some cinemas in America allegedly refused to show it because they did not want to offend viewers of The Passion of the Christ, which was out at the same time. <laughs> what an amazing double feature that would be. Theatrically, it made $99 million on a $66 million budget. It was the 58th highest grossing movie of 2004. But financially, the ancillaries was where it made all of its money. I have a quote here from Del Toro. The Blu-ray DVD performance of the first Hellboy was massive. So big that Ben Feingold at Columbia went full on on the sequel development. Ben was so impressed by those numbers that he made Hellboy one of the very first Blu-rays from Columbia Pictures. Far as I can recall, the number for home video surpassed theatrical. That makes sense to me. It was released many months later on August the 19th in Australia. It opened number one against The Lady Killers and Before Sunset. Its widest release here was in 223 theatres, and it made $2.4 million of its worldwide gross here. It was well received by critics. It has an 81% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. The critics' consensus there reads, With wit, humour, and Guillermo del Toro's fantastic visuals, the entertaining Hellboy transcends the derivative nature of the genre. Audiences were more mixed, though. They gave it a B- cinema score which I think probably has something to do with the Lovecraftian elements. Mm, probably. But it was nominated for a few awards here. I do want to zero in on three awards ceremonies in particular. This, of course, being a science fiction, fantasy, or horror film, it was... I mean, the, the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films had to stand for it. It won Best Makeup there, and it was nominated for Best Fantasy Film, Best Costumes, and Best DVD Special Edition Release for the Director's Cut. We will get into that in a minute. It was nominated for a whole bunch of awards at the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards. It won, again, Best Makeup slash Creature Effects. And it was nominated for Best Wide Release Film, Best Actor, Ron Perlman, Best Supporting Actor, John Hurt, Best Supporting Actress, Selma Blair. Best Screenplay, Guillermo del Toro. And Best Score by Marco Beltrami. And it was also nominated for a single Teen Choice Award for Choice Drama Slash Action Adventure Movie. I suppose, since I just did mention that there is a director's cut of this movie, we should just establish, to start off with, which version of this that we watched. And I have a... So I watched the director's cut. Mm. I forgot to actually double check which version was available because i'm assuming you streamed it correct yes yes on stan all right so did you get a scene towards the very beginning a, a longer version of the scene where broom was diagnosed with terminal cancer in which he flips over a, a death tarot card no no then you watched the theatrical cut mm. the director's cut is mostly character stuff Anything drastic? More fleshing out of the relationship between... Actually, this is probably a better scene. You didn't get the scene of Myers and Liz in the taxi with each other? No. No. All right. Yeah, you definitely watched the theatrical cut. It's a lot more of the stuff between the relationships between Myers and Liz that kind of makes their flirtation a little more believable. There's more stuff to do with, you know, Hellboy and fair few more 
added sequences with Broom, but not really anything actioning. I didn't even know that was the director's cut, mm. so that came as a surprise to me. But let's talk about the whole cosmic vibe of this, because it is totally yes. my thing. The tone here is very Lovecraft. The, oh god, what are, what are they even called again? The Ogre Jihad. Yeah. They are very old ones, the old gods kind of stuff, very Cthulhu-y. Yeah. Right down yeah. to the tentacles. I mean, they're big octopus. So many tentacles. And my understanding is that they are the franchise villains of Hellboy, that as the comic series goes on, they continue to be a presence. I read Seeds of Destruction and a couple of the short stories. In my estimation, I think the Ultra Jihad are actually very important, but there are more conscious villains. Yeah. Carrying on sort of the plot to bring the Ultra Jihad. They tend to be the, the, the villains whose agents are the ones that... Mm. Yeah. Hellboy and Co are encountering rather than the Ogdru Jihad themselves. But I do yeah. love just that teasing bit of seeing their dimension, of seeing these giant things in space, frozen yeah. in ice. I mean, that's such a great visual. At the beginning, they open up this gate to... It's not hell. This is somewhere else. Mm. You know, when the Nazis are opening up the portal to somewhere, you expect fire and brimstone. No, it's just space. It's a void, yeah. There's something so deeply terrifying about that, and then seeing the Ogre Jihad captured in their crystal prison, all seven of them, just floating almost aimlessly through space. Floating around like they're friggin' General Zod or something. It's such evocative yeah. imagery. And another one of the images that really gets to me is when the Ogre Jihad are being released near the end, or when that first lock busts open. All the clouds and stuff, with this, like, big beam coming up out of the ground, and you see the octopus. Yeah. Uh, that's like the flash-forward thing, isn't it? The imagining? No, 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 no. It's near the end. So, like, Hellboy unlocks the thing with this big fist, which is the key, and you see these shots of the old Rujahad freeing themselves from... Right, coming out of the portal-y stuff. They're manifesting in the world, and... It's just like this really beautiful, sublime shot that shows you that these beings are simply more significant than you. Yeah. You you guys have got to play Mass Effects. <laughs> mm. Now that I actually think about it, there is a lot about this plot here that is very, very similar to the first Mass Effects game. The Ogre Jihad as entities, they are far more significant than the normal person. They exist on more planes of reality than the average being does. That's what I mean by them existing more. They, it's not just the space they inhabit, it's the utter, a normal person when they throw a rock in a lake, they create splashes on the surface. The Ogre Jihad, if they do something to the lake, the lake doesn't exist anymore. You're talking about it, it existing on multiple planes at once. Yeah, they can affect multiple worlds. Not only do we get the Ogre Jihad as these octopus-esque beings, very Cthulhu. Just these big fellas. The Samael who has the sort of tentacles and stuff, but he releases spores and has eggs and shit. Then there's Saduhem, which is that big octopus thing that crawls out of Rasputin's chest at the mm. end. Yeah. I believe that's Saduhem from the comic, who's translated pretty well, I'd say. Not as many eyes as I would like. We'll get into that, but yeah, I have problems with that. But I, I really do like the tone here, and I like mm. the sort of tying of history into it. Yeah. The whole idea, it's, it's that little exchange of dialogue between 
Broom and Myers as they're walking down the hallways. Broom's explaining the BPRD and he talks about how Hitler didn't die until the 50s. Mm. Yeah. 1958, the occult wars finally come to an end with the death of Adolf Hitler. 1945, you mean? Hitler died in 45. Did he now? He has this, like, smug smile. Hmm. The spear of Longinus is there. Grants indestructibility yeah. to people. The spear that supposedly was the one used by the centurion to pierce the side of Christ as he hung on the cross. Yeah. Oh, no, it's the idea of these artifacts that are so not only religiously significant, but are granted these insane powers. Yeah, it's it, there's a lot of, like, really cool ideas here, and it makes me, you know, kind of surprised that they haven't tried to retool Hellboy as a streaming show somewhere. Mm. You know, this feels like it could be... an an X-Files-ish sort of... X-Files, but Mulder and Scully are monsters too. I would not do it that way. To veer closer to the comics, I would make it more like The Witcher in terms of tone and structure. And with Henry Cavill. No, you get Perlman back or you get Stephen Lang. Oh, Perlman is approaching 70. I'm not sure how much he's up for it. He can still kick ass. Dave Batista. Yep. Okay, yeah, yeah. David Hobb is okay, conceptually, as a Hellboy, I just don't know that the gruffness is there, yes, but uh, I don't know. Ron Perlman is 71 years old. I don't, I don't think he would be able to do... Not all that makeup. I wouldn't put him on all that makeup. Or an animated show done with proper effort behind it, as to emulate the design in the comics. I'll dig into what my criticism adaptationally is here. We spend too much time in the real world. We spend a lot of time in the cityscape. We spend a lot of time in sort of sci-fi facilities and stuff. Whereas in the comic, Mike Minola very cleverly opens up a lot in media res when he's on his way to deal with the situation. We spend a lot of time outside of civilization in the comics. That's the most interesting stuff I find in this movie as well. Because when we hit these less realistic locations, that's when Del Toro gets to show off. That really seems like it might be a kind of unavoidable problem considering the budget yeah. restraints that this would have had. This this was $66 million. Yeah. I mean, to put that in perspective, the cat in the hat cost almost double that. You know, they didn't have a great deal to work with. Yeah, but the other thing adaptationally is that this is very Americanized, this film. It's very interested in Hellboy as an American character living in America, and that so follows that Americans are very interested in organizations like the FBI, <laughs> and eventually, in this movie, the BPRD. So, there's a lot of stuff in facilities here, which one's mileage can vary. Which was something, if I recall correctly, they did change a little bit in the David Harbour reboot that all took place in Europe. That's probably a bit more like what the comic goes for. Yeah. Yes, there, are, there is one thing that I think that the 2019 reboot has over the Del Toro Hellboys, and it is that it has an R rating. I, I feel, yes. watching this movie, that this movie is in constant search of an R rating. It yeah. is butting up against the limits of what it can do over and yeah. over again. And it pushes it. It really pushes it. Like the surgery addicted Nazi assassin with no eyelids. <laughs> clockworks. Like when he gets shot, his his organs are so old they've turned to dust and the dust pours out of the holes. Mm, I mean, yeah. 
That dude's just a nightmare. Mm. Oh, his CGI eyes? Jesus Christ. Well, this is this is something else in the director's cut that Rasputin has no eyes once he comes back from wherever it is that he has been. Mm. And that was apparently, there was a cut scene because it was a little too graphic that is reinserted in the director's cut where you see the shot of Rasputin, his eyes, his lack of eyes, mm. to be more accurate, which is pretty full on. That's cool. The thing I like about the the assassin character, the gas mask assassin character, I forget his name, uh, Cronin, I believe. Yeah, I believe so. Is that in the scene when he's in his sort of like lair, he's got all his masks on his table and he's working on his gear. That feels very Pale Man. Like, the staging of it feels very Pale Man from Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. Even Abe Sapien kind of has hints of that in terms of the general, like, mm. the smooth head and the the very sort of... Freaky hands. Yes. The, the way that Doug Jones uses his hands mm. and his fingers makes them very active yeah. in a way that mm. human beings usually don't. And there is actually... It's, it's probably not visible enough to be a conscious thing that you register, but there is actually a prosthetic that he is wearing on his hands sometimes, which actually, it's a prosthetic thumb, so that when he opens his palms up and spreads all of his fingers out, the thumb is actually far further down than any human thumb could go. But it's just this sort of subconscious thing. It's a thing that he does when he's reading people, when he's doing the psychic yeah. thing, which isn't in isn't in the stories, is it? He's not psychic in the comics. No, he's incredibly intelligent. Still a amphibious fish man. His origin story, pretty much the same, even down to what his name is. He was labelled as an ichthyosapien, but the date on the label was the date of Abraham Lincoln's death, so they called him Abe Sapien. The date of his assassination, he died of his injury the day after. At any rate. Well, we never see what date was on the... The thing, it might have been the date of his death. Maybe. I think Abe Sapien is translated really well. I yeah. just wish he was in more of it. Oh yeah, he's the best part of this movie for me. Like, of the main team, he is the best part of this movie. Like, Doug Jones is just fantastic. And David Hyde Pierce, for as much as he clearly did not need to be involved, I think that's some really great dubbing. Like, the sink oh, yeah. on the lips yeah. is pitch perfect. I think part of that was the fact he was emulating as much of Jones' performance as he could. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Out of deference and respect. I think the translation of Hellboy's character suffers a lot more. Mm. Mainly because... Okay, there's a concept in literature called the Byronic Hero. Sort of a practical man going up against yeah. forces beyond what a normal man is capable of. And what was Lord Byron thinking of when he came up with that, if not Hellboy? Well, Byron was thinking of himself. Yes, I, I know. I'm just, <laughs> I know. I, I love the use, use of these classical concepts with something as so mainstream and so modern as, as Hellboy. Like, I wonder, like, if you, if you took a Hellboy comic back in time and gave it to Lord Byron and said, what do you think of this Byronic hero? <laughs> well, two things. He probably wouldn't know what that meant since the term was coined while often, but. Do you, hey, do you think this big red guy is like you? <laughs> I mean, you never know. He might say yes. Isn't he the guy that took a wild animal to his university? Yep, 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 a bear. Yeah. Because they said he couldn't have a dog. So he was like, well, I'll have a bear then. Yes, because there's nothing in the rules about having a bear. <laughs> yeah. He was an asshole. I was more comparing the Byronic Hero to the comic version of Hellboy. Mm. 
in the book, Hellboy acts a lot like this blue-collar guy. Yes, he has this outstanding destiny, he has this remarkable, these amazing powers. He literally has a Hellrock fist that operates a key to an alternate dimension with Eldritch creatures on the other side banging on the door to be let inside. But the at the end of the day, Hellboy was raised as a person, and he chooses to be a person through all of the nonsense he has to deal with people trying to use him and abuse him to create the end of the world. In the book, Hellboy is doing it because he wants to retain his humanity. In this adaptation of the character, it feels like Hellboy is going against his destiny simply because that's his attitude to things. Like, he wants to... I don't know. Something about this adaptation of the character just feels immature. Hmm. And I think that comes down to the fact they've given him that romance and relationship. Well, yeah, I, I did mention at the top that I have some problems with Hellboy, that Hellboy himself is, I think, that the least interesting part of this whole thing. And I think that's part of the way that he's pitched, that he's pitched as sort of this meathead, and I'm just not very interested in that. He's kind of just really bullish and... I think I nailed down the word. He seems petulant. Yeah about his destiny rather than attempting to hold on to his humanity. I don't even know if it's his destiny. I just think he's just kind of a... He's just kind of a lunkhead. Yeah, and, like, his destiny doesn't really even enter into it. There's only, like, one... Not, not until the very, very yeah. end, and then it becomes a more prominent point of discussion in the second film. In the second yeah. film, the angel of death that I mentioned, the angel of death basically tells him... you. you you know you're prophesied to destroy the world, right? It is going to happen. Obviously setting something up, and I think he says something to Liz, that, and and you're the one that's going to be hurt most of all. But obviously we'll never know what what, what might have happened, because... But yeah, he, he is just kind of this... And, and I that's kind of what Del Toro was trying to do. He's kind of trying to make him this stereotypical all-American male who, you know, sits and eats nachos and yells at sports games on TV. Mm. And I'm just not interested in that. Yeah. Like, like that just mm. seems like a really boring character to me. And I find myself thinking, wow, I would be so much more on board with team leader Abe Sapien, mm. you know? Keep Hellboy around, by all means, you know, keep him in the background, but make, make Abe Sapien the focus. Hellboy makes for a great hammer. Mm. You know, pitch him like Drax, have him be like a kind of funny supporting character, but leave the emotional and storytelling heavy lifting to someone a little more... With a little more depth. Like the fish boy. The way I see it, Perlman does a great job inhabiting the role hmm. as it was pitched for the movie. Yeah. Hellboy can be a wisecracker in the comics, but that's not like his primary mode of behavior. He does it as a deflection, not because he's a smartass. Like a normal, how a normal person would react to living in an extraordinary world, you'd kind of get sick and tired of it after mm. a while and, and and start to resort to humour to temper things. When we're talking about sort of boring and average characters, John Myers, mm. the most average man in existence. Yes, a sentient piece of white bread. Yeah, he is the normal man. Yes, and, and I, I actually think that Rupert Evans is doing what he can with yeah. that. I think that mm. he's actually being as charming as any actor could be with what is, as you say, a very standard, nice, clean-cut kind of a guy. I think he fulfills a really important storytelling purpose mm. in that he is the new guy. He is the guy that is coming in to be the, the audience surrogate so that the other characters 
have to explain things to him that then, of course, by proxy gets explained to us. I mean, it's a, it's a clever device. It's been used many times. You know, the Men in Black movies do the same thing. But, you know, Will Smith just has more personality in the Men in Black movies because, you know, and I think this is the key thing, Myers is not the main character of Hellboy. No, no. You know, he is not even, I don't think, in the top three main characters of Hellboy, and I think that Del Toro doesn't have all that much interest in him, other yeah. than as a storytelling device. Hellboy is explicitly about, you know, good guy monsters. Mm. It's about the yeah. fish guy, it's about the demon guy, it's about the, you know, the fire starter girl who can't control her own powers. And not only is that obviously what the comics were, and, and any adaptation of them would, would contain that also, but I think looking at De- Del Toro's other work, you know, stuff like Pan's Labyrinth, The Shape of Water, you know, he he is so much more interested in yeah. the monsters than in the humans. Absolutely. He has this beautiful empathy for those considered, you know, physically monstrous, mm. those who are scorned by society, whereas he has a great deal of disdain for people who choose to be monstrous, people who have monstrous behavior. Yeah. In Pan's Labyrinth, it's the fascists. In... Hellboy, it's the Nazis. Hellboy, it's the fascists. In... Yeah. Shape of Water, it's the fascists. <laughs> a, a string of anti-fascist sentiment here, but I think that Del Toro was a really great choice. Mm. Yeah. To direct a Hellboy movie, even though I wish he was given a greater budget to work with. Yeah, he, he loves this stuff, clearly. I mean, he loves the design, he loves the creature stuff, he loves the Lovecraftian stuff. I mean, this movie makes me so desperately want him to get that at the Mountains of Madness yeah. film yeah. off the ground. Like, if- He's the only person I think who could do it, perhaps, except for the Empty Man guy. Interesting that you say this. I only realised, well, I knew this was happening, but they only put out some more information about it recently. Del Toro has a Netflix anthology series that he's making. Mm. I forget the name of it. I'll have to look at They changed the name of it. I think they called it After Midnight at some point, but I think it's different now. Like, it's an episodic thing, not a seasonal anthology, but an episode anthology. Here we go. Guillermo Del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. Yes. <laughs> they haven't released any story summaries yet, but they have released some of the creative teams and... The guy who directed The Empty Man is directing an episode. and Oh, that is wonderful. And two of the episodes in the season are based on short stories by H.P. Lovecraft, and another two are based on original stories by Guillermo del Toro. Cool. Okay, okay, my dream team for a piece of art, Guillermo del Toro and Neil Gaiman. Get them together to work on something, please. Mm. Their sensibilities match so perfectly. But again, Del Toro, I've seen the Golden Army before. One thing I like is how they address the Fae, the fairies from folklore in that movie, because that's another huge part of the Hellboy story, and how magic exists, not just in a cosmic sense, but in a practical sense. Mm. Like when he uh, digs up old mate Ivan. Mm. I like that. And, and chains him to his back, that being a reference to a story called The Corpse, uh, which is a short, sort of like two-issue comic from Mignola's original run, based on a piece of Irish folklore. There are a lot of these awesome elements that Del Toro is bringing in. With a bigger budget, 
he would have been able to spend more time out doing that sort of thing. Yeah. As opposed to having to play it safe. And that's what I think does hurt this movie as an adaptation. It has to play it safe. And it's using very plain stock standard story beats to accomplish that as well. Mm. The hero hidden from the world, but rebelling against that. The government asshole. The government asshole. The incredibly weak love triangle. Yeah. Let's let's talk a bit about those two archetypes. I mean, Jeffrey Tambor. Um, I hate that character so much. He was so unnecessary. See, actually, that's interesting because I actually think that the movie pitches him as a little more sympathetic than all that. He is trying to keep things under control. Like I, I see his point of view. Yeah, but he's I a hundred and ten percent see it. Because he's been doing it for years. He's been dealing with this idiot Hellboy who keeps ending up in the media. They're inviting an FBI spokesperson on like late night talk shows for some reason. I'm going to move past that. But <laughs> he, all he does is cause problems for it and like act shitty about it when confronted in the aftermath. At some point, you've got to say, honestly, screw it. Hellboy exists, but none of this other shit does. That's not Jeffrey Tambor's call to make. It's Broom's call to make. It's not Broom's call to make either. That's like a US government kind of a call. People know Hellboy exists. It's basically just... Yeah. Well, he's an urban legend, like Bigfoot. Yeah, but but no one ever says, Oh yeah, I saw Bigfoot fight this alien-looking dog thing in the subway. How do you cover that shit up? You can't. Mm. I love the concept of Samael, the regenerating. Yes. <laughs> the Hound of Resurrection. Yeah, the way that he sort of just, every time he's killed, two of them spawn in his place. Mm. Not only that, he's got his little babies. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. The creature lays eggs. Because of course it does. And then you get that bit with the agents and Sapien down in the mm. the underground of the subways, which is, that's got a real mimic vibe. Speaking of Del Toro, like that's got a real mimic vibe, abandoned subway stations yeah. and stuff like that. The tunnels underneath it, but the guy that he's coming in to replace, the one that's had the hair transplant, yeah. he's a guy that just turns up in things. I, I notice him more and more. I, I only notice him because he is the American industrialist responsible for resurrecting the Daleks in the modern Doctor Who series. <laughs> like, he's in one episode and he screws it up for everyone for the rest of the whole series. <laughs> and I notice him ever since. That's funny. I love his relationship with Hellboy. They just get along. Yeah. yeah, they're, they're, they're interested in each other's shit. I love their chemistry because their chemistry is really natural as, like, a friend relationship. Like, the guy is complaining about or talking about the hair implants and the Hellboy's going, no, no, it looks good. I think I'm looking to get it myself. That's a very Hellboy sort of humor, but let's talk about Rasputin. He's very underdeveloped. Oh, yeah, he's not an interesting villain. And that is, like... The most interesting villain in the thing is Cronin. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because he doesn't talk. Because he's just this weird freak. Yeah, and he's got that sort of clockwork element to him, which is fascinating. And he's, he just has this, a striking look to him. Mm. He's like yeah. demonic daft punk. When we see him without all the stuff on in his autopsy that yeah. apparently <laughs> incredibly terminally ill Professor Broom is inducting himself... He just looks like a patchwork puppet nightmare, mm. and I hate it. It's very well realised, but I he hate it. He removed his eyelids, and he removed his lips. But he, he isn't that dangerous in the comics, is he? No, I don't believe so. He's made this ninja assassin type in the movie, which he isn't in, in the, the comics. In the comics, apparently, he's this sort of nerdy kind of don't-touch-the-machines kind of person. 
He's more of a science guy as opposed to a ninja sword guy, but it does provide another martial threat for the movie, and it's a cool aesthetic. I like when he lies down and just pretends to be dead. <laughs> he sets it like an egg timer in himself. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the best part, that he, he sets some sort of timer on his clockwork insides to wake him up. I also love that he's like he's got these tonfa knives that he's like flipping about and shit. And I was just watching that thinking, you know, no one else can see you do that that flippy stuff other than the other evil person you've got next to you, that that lady. He's doing it to impress himself. He's doing it for himself, you know, you gotta take joy in the work that you do. Yeah, I agree that Rasputin is not a particularly interesting main villain. In the original Seed of Destruction story, it's less globe-spanning, globe-trotting, but the villain of that is Rasputin. In the movie, they were in those Scottish ruins of an old house, and that's where the Nazis are doing their thing, and where Hellboy appears. In the book, the ceremony is happening at Stonehenge, but Hellboy still appears in this ruined house. But in the main story of Seed of Destruction, Broom dies early on, uh, killed by these frogs. Well, I I still want to talk about Rasputin before we move on from him. I'm getting to the Rasputin. Okay. Thing. No, no, no! Don't don't move along too too quickly. There are frog boys. Uh, of course, you, we've just been talking about the frog guy. Well, the fish guy, but you really frog boys are where you cook, where you draw the line. I'm not drawing the line. I like frog boys. Samuel is kind of like the frog boys. Oh. They don't really look like frogs, but they're very frog-like. Oh, okay. But Rasputin, he's been playing the long game in the comic ever since his drowning and waking up under the water, and basically going into hiding for a hundred years. The only reason he sided with the Nazis is because they were stooges easy to manipulate, so he could Mm. get access to the materials necessary to open the portal. So, in the comics, he isn't sucked through the portal? No. The portal opens in in the Scottish ruined home, whereas the Nazis who are present at the ceremony in Stonehenge just think that... Rasputin was wasting their time, but Rasputin ditches them when the war ends and the Allies win, and Rasputin goes into hiding. It's complicated, but Rasputin is more of an interesting sort of eldritch creature in his own right in the book, because he has this magic ability to influence people. Yeah. And drain not only what energy they have, but what psychic energy they might Which have. Which is used at points in this movie. The mistake he makes in the book is trying to drain Liz. Okay, that's interesting. But the problem Rasputin made was that he was trying to use your energy to tap into uh, the Odru Jihad. He didn't know how much you actually have in there, and even a fragment of what you've got he can't handle. Yeah, he's not very interesting as he is presented in the film. He yeah. he doesn't get much development. I mean, the performance by Carol Roden is not a very interesting performance. It's pretty generic. I get Peter Stamere. Yeah, it's just kind of a of a nothing thing. Again, it's a letdown. It, it feels kind of like Del Toro's not interested. Yeah. That he's just this guy. I actually yeah. think that it would have been so much more interesting, and I suppose you... You can kind of read it that way in the movie if you really choose to, but there's not all that much supporting it. But it would have been so interesting if, at the end, where that tentacle stuff spawns out of him, if we just found out that it actually wasn't Rasputin. That the only time we really saw Rasputin in the whole movie was in the flashbacks Mm. of the 40s. Whatever this thing is, 
it's a monster wearing Rasputin skin. Yeah. You know, that would have been a cool way to take that character. Although I do really appreciate that the lady he was with is so incredibly ride or die. Like, she's so loyal. <laughs> she is 100%. Got to appreciate a henchman who is that loyal to someone. Well, her immortality is tied to him. Yeah. Well, that too, but I feel like there is an actual belief in what he's doing coming from her. Also in Seed of Destruction, the book, Rasputin is trying to empower this eldritch creature called Saduhem. Siphoning his power into Saduhem, he's basically using himself as a conduit to extract Liz's power uh, through him into Saduhem. There's also, like, ghosts and shit. The Olufsen family who has been being manipulated by Rasputin this whole time to bring Saduhem to civilization. Let's talk about that ending, because I, I do think that, you know, the whole... Now Rasputin's a giant tentacle monster is kind of a bit of a weak ending. And I think it's a problem that a lot of Lovecraftian adaptations run into, which is they feel like they need to do something big at the finale. They need a big action sequence. And so they do something like this movie does, where they come out with a big, you know, tentacle creature, and then it just gets blown up. Look, I think generally the ending is kind of poor, because as as a narrative, it writes itself into a hole, because Rasputin's whole thing is to summon these chaos gods, essentially, these big tentacle boys, who are going to literally destroy everything. We know that this can't... When the boys come back to town, the town is not going to ever be the same. We know that this can't happen. And we know that Hellboy has to fight back against what is going to happen. He can't fight against these squid things, so he is going to fight through whatever changes are happening to him when he gets his horns and everything. There are two alternate things that I think they could have done. I think... The first is to just end it before Rasputin turns into a tentacle yeah. thing. That Hellboy makes the choice and that was done. And probably given the budget that they had, that was the correct thing. They wouldn't have had some big bombastic finale, but it would have been better for it. Mm. The other thing would have been to have Rasputin succeed, mm. at least temporarily. For the portals to actually open, for these eldritch creatures to come through, and for the BPRD then have to spend the last 20 minutes of the movie reversing it, sending them back somehow. Mm. And then that could be like the ending of the the film is that now the world knows that this is happening. They know that Hellboy is real. They know that there are these threats. And obviously that's something that they do in the second movie anyway. But that also probably was would have been too much for their $66 million budget to handle. Just the fight against the squid thing at the end is just far too short and it dies way too easy. You know what I would have preferred, right? You have Hellboy turn into Anungun Rama, which is his demon name, when he's got those big horns, there's smoke coming out of his mouth, his sigils on the rock arm start blazing and he's got the crown of fire resting between his big horns which is a really dope translation of Anung Rama in the comics you have Anung Onrama fight Saduhem the, the little squid boy that pops out of Espion's chest you have that be the throwdown because it would make more use out of the Anung Onrama stuff you have the big boss battle trying to get back to the lock so he can lock it. I think it would have been interesting if you don't have the fight against the giant squid guy, 
and you have just this little squid thing pop out of Rasputin's body, and Hellboy just steps on it to death. Like, to, sh- to show that Rasputin's god, or whatever this thing is, is nothing. Well, it's not a god. I don't even know what it is. It's it's not the Ogdru Nahar. No. They're still chilling out in deep space or wherever they are. It's a eldritch being, but it's not a, one of world-shattering power. Yeah. So do him is powerful but it's not i think he just dies way too quickly for the fight to even have any impact whatsoever i like the idea of him walking up to a defeated rasputin who's like starting to sort of necrotize turn into dust himself hellboy grabs the head in the big rock hand just crushes it let's talk a little bit about that love triangle because i think that's really the last big topic that we haven't talked about it's a nothing thing there's nothing coming from liz towards maya well there's nothing there's nothing coming from liz towards hellboy Mm. Mm. you know i don't i don't buy the romance between either of them no personally if i'm liz i'm going for maya i think there's more security there stability with a completely average man yeah and he's not 35 years older than me. You probably got a lot more context in the director's cut. Yeah. A lot of the interpersonal relationships. Yes. Now that you say that, yes, a lot of the scenes that I was seeing there that were added were a lot of the Myers-Liz scenes that make that relationship make a lot more sense. But I'm still getting the impression that it's weak anyway. Yeah, it's just not necessary. I mean, and again, I'm just not very interested in Hellboy, so his... I mean, the best thing we get out of it is the child giving him romantic advice on the roof. I love him pegging the rock at Maya's head. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great comedic beat there. Overall, I think it's because whenever Ron Perlman is trying to do these really sensitive moments in this film, like the ending, the very end, where he's talking to Liz about how, you know, he would go to hell to save her. I'm like, this is unnecessary. That's a badly written moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's too much. Perlman can He's do trying, it. but you can't say that line. He's very hamstrung by the situation. Yeah, the role that made him famous was as the Beast on the Lin- Linda Hamilton Beauty and the Beast show. Mm. Like, he has form playing these sort of monster romantic leads, mm. but I think yeah. the problem here is that the script doesn't work for it. It's, it's not good writing in this sense, because the material has not called for this to even be a thing. You know, it's sort of just been forced in there, this this romantic subplot that I, I never buy in any capacity, really. And it it's not a necessary thing to be in there. And, I mean, I, I get why it's in there thematically. I, I get why that's interesting to Del Toro with the whole idea of these sympathetic monsters and, you know, how do they find a romantic attachment if they are so unlike us. I mean, Abe Sapien is a better romantic lead... Then Hellboy, as proven by Shape of Water, a romantic fish person. Well, Abe Abe Sapien gets to have a crush in the second movie, but he he has that line in the tank when he's talking to Liz after he's been injured, when he says, all us freaks have is each other. And I think that that's probably the... That, that's really the direction of this whole love triangle is is the the feeling of, you know, companionship when you are alone like they are. I, I think that's what Del Toro is getting at. I just don't think it is executed well. In Seed of Destruction, it feels like, because Liz and Abe are there in that first storyline, it feels like they're just really great friends. Oh, yeah. It never turns up in the comic books. They're not romantic partners. They're work colleagues, but they're also friends. Like, they really do get along. And I find, like, that sense of 
found community between the three of them, and even with the most average man in existence, would be, you know, because he's strange to them, because he's normal to the broader world writ large. Okay, so here here it is. I think there are two problems with the romantic thing. And I actually think in this context, Perlman is not one of them. I think Hellboy's characterization, whatever. But I think that Selma Blair and Rupert Evans are miscast if they wanted to do this romance Mm -hmm. thing. I think that Selma Blair is just a little too safe a performance. What we needed for that character to really sell the kind of, yeah, she'd get with Hellboy is someone like Ava Green. Yeah. You know, there needed to be more of an edge to her than there is. And as for Myers, we needed someone who has the force of personality, the sort of movie star quality that would automatically give him a charm and charisma, no matter how underwritten that is. If you've, if you've got, if you've got someone like Colin Farrell. God, yeah, Colin Farrell. That's a, that's a good example. Someone who can come in and, you know, there's there's a magnetism about them as a person that Rupert Evans, for as perfectly fine a job as he does with the material that he's given, he doesn't have that. He doesn't have that center of gravity as as a star persona where he walks on screen and the whole movie starts to revolve around him. And I think that that's that's what Myers needs to have to make him as compelling a a, a choice as Hellboy is. Hellboy is. Immediately more interesting as a romantic lead because he is a monster. I don't yeah. think it works in the movie that we've got, but but because he is a monster, there's already a whole lot more places to go there. Absolutely. But I, I think those are the things. I think that you need someone a little more dangerous as Liz, and I think you need someone more instantly charming as Myers. And then I think that whole thing could have worked better than it did. Because but- when he walks in, he doesn't seem like a romantic rival to Hellboy. Yes. Again, this is something that is expanded on in the director's cut. You get a lot more of them talking. You get a lot more of him making her comfortable to even come back from the asylum and come back to the BPRD. Mm, Yeah. That's, I guess, what we can say about this movie. It plays it very safe, generally speaking. Well, it plays it safe in some senses, but also just the full concept of it, that you're making a $66 million studio movie about you know, a demon from hell and a fish man and they're fighting Cthulhu monsters. That's not a mainstream idea. No. You know, that is not Spider-Man. That is not the X-Men. That is not, you know, even even Blade. It's not Blade. It's it's a weirder, more left-of-center idea than most superhero films were taking at the time. That creates this, like, weird tension that it's a very strange concept that we hadn't seen before. But it uses story beats that are actually really, really safe. I would have liked a real swing to the fences here. Yeah, like we were talking about how in the production history, how Del Toro said there was some some meddling, and I kind of wonder whether Myers is a studio mandate. And they're like, all right, come on, let's let's put a normal guy in there. You know, you got all these weird people. Let's let's chuck a normal person in there. What's the most normal person you could possibly comprehend? Yeah, it's this guy. He's, like, as average as it gets. He looks like if if you showed a picture of him to someone, they would say, oh, his name is Man-Man. His name is Manfred Mann. He's so normal, it's off-putting. Mm. I've watched this movie. <laughs> I don't know if I could pick him out of a lineup. Yeah. <laughs> he, he looks like... Admittedly, I watched this movie, like, a week and a half ago now, but still. He looks like his favorite food is a ham and cheese sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> He's just normal. He like his favorite drink is a cold glass of water. No, it's this warm glass of milk. <laughs> no, he has normal room temperature water when he's out during the day. 
Oh, when he goes to bed, he has a warm glass of milk. And his favourite food is boiled meat and potatoes. I feel like we're reaching the end here. Is there anything else you guys would like to add? Oh, I just wanted to add it. He looks like the kind of person who, in his lunchbox, he's just got a boiled egg. Just a boiled egg. (laughs) It's ham sandwich, boiled egg, juice box, and apple. All right, moving on here. Now, there is actually enough material here for an instalment in our recurring segment, the IMDb Parents Guide, where we... (laughs) I feel like we should probably set this up, just in case there are any new listeners from this point on, but the IMDb Parents Guide is when we examine the sometimes hand-ringy, sometimes pervy entries into the IMDb Parents Guide for the Film of the Week. So what are the degenerates in the Parents Guide up to today? Well, in the sex and nudity section, Hellboy can be seen without a shirt in some parts of the movie. This is not meant to be sexual in any way. Then don't mention it! I I do have to say, the makeup's really good on Hellboy. I have to give them props for that. I saw no flaws. Like, no, none of the seams, nothing. It's wonderful work. And the only other one is in the language and swearing section. Right. A number of abuses of our Lord's name. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. And you better believe that our and Lord are, you know, those are proper nouns. They are capital. Of course. Yes. Of course they are. That's just being accurate to the terminology. Like I mean, sure, but you've watched a movie called Hellboy. Come on. You, you, you think they're going to be... The most respectful thing. And it's not like the movie even denies the existence of God. All of that religious shit works. Hellboy uses the pinky finger of a saint as a way to ward off evil. A cross is burnt onto his hand near the end. Jesus is a real thing in this. God is a real thing in this. Is God a squid monster? Probably. So now, why don't we move on to saying who our MVP is, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and who in this movie we would recast with John Lithgow, this podcast's patron saint. I will start us off and I will say that my MVP here is Guillermo del Toro. I think you see his fingerprints all over this thing. The cosmic stuff, the incredible design, the attention to detail with the creatures, all of this stuff. I think the stuff that is brought in by his personality and and his the things that he enjoys, those are the best things in the movie, in my opinion. And so I've got to give it to that. It, and it just, it again, it really makes me want to see him do something that is outright Lovecraftian. I think that would be really cool. Mm. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I am actually not sure. There are a lot of things that I get a real kick out of in this movie, but I'm not sure I can zero in on a particular scene. If I have to, I think I'm going to have to do the, the flashback, the prologue in 1944, because that sets it all up so well. You get the great production design and the, the character and creature design it's a big bombastic sequence that guy that they get to play young john hurt is like creepily accurate yeah. but like the the introduction of the ogdru nahad you know seeing them out in deep space that's all really cool stuff it, it sets things up really well and yeah that's that tone of that scene is the tone of that i love and whenever the movie returns to that tone it is it's good stuff yeah in terms of who i would recast with john lithgow I'm going Abe Sapien. Okay. I think that he would do really well as this kind of, you know, bookish, kind of strange, moving fish creature. I think it would be really fun to see him in full body prosthetics. (laughs) 
and I think that he he could do the the you know the the sort of light voice, yeah, very intellectual sounding, you know, behind this door, darkness, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. He could do that. He could yeah, that would be that would be really fun. My MVP has to go again to Guillermo del Toro. If this was directed by someone who had less talent and less passion for the subject matter, someone would have caved to those really stupid studio ideas and really corrupted the soul of what Hellboy is supposed to be. It's a story about those who are othered and use their special talent to help people. The comics aren't strictly superhero comics in format, but in meaning they are. For what are superheroes if not exceptional people using their exceptional selves to save the Mm. world? And Guillermo del Toro has this amazing passion for those who are different and really does understand that those who are different have a lot to offer the world. And that's one of the ideas behind Hellboy, and Mignola, you know, understands that too. So Guillermo del Toro was an inspired choice. This is perhaps not the most stylistically interesting del Toro film, but I like it, and he does a good job. My favorite scene of sequence has to be the Rama stuff, when we see him in his, like, true ultimate form, like the, the flash-forward shit. Mm. To the end of the world that Rasputin gives to Professor Broom. It's like Onungun Rama staring over and brooding over this like apocalyptic hellscape, which is cool. Uh, I love the whole sequence where like trying to seal the Ogdru Jahad. I've been saying it the wrong time. I've been saying Ogdru Jahad. Ogdru Jahad. Okay. O G D R U J A H A D. Ogdru Jahad. Don't worry about. It. I've been saying it really quickly. Yeah, yeah, you have. Trying to seal the Ogdru Jihad back inside. Those huge scale shots we see of the big octopus. It's just really cool imagery that both is like eldritch horror, but also like very sublimely beautiful mm. in a sense. It really makes you think about your scale. Yeah, in terms of this absolute ginormity of them. Yeah, the enormity of not only their being, but what they represent and what they mean. And that's the idea of the Sublime. I think that that's my favorite moment. If I had to recast John Lithgow in this movie, I would give him the government stooge role. Replace Tambor with our good friend. I think that not only would he bring a fun energy to that role... He doesn't know us. Well, it's a one-sided friendship. That's called stalking, Lawson. We're strictly parasocial. <laughs> but I would put Lithgow in the Tambor role. I think that not only does that give us a good amount of him, I think that he would bring just this really fun energy to it. Yeah, so for me, I'll, gi- I'll also give it to Del Toro. This movie would not have worked as well as it does without him. He has such a vision of these kinds of stories and this kind of gothic filmmaking he's just exceptional at it crimson peak pants labyrinth even shape of water in a sense it is all there's such control over what he's putting in the frame and what the art design is and everything he's just uh an auteur in the best sense of the term for my favorite scene or sequence i'm with lawson on this it's the prologue it's It creates a tone that the rest of the movie doesn't really return to, and I think it is the coolest part of it. On the topic of John Lithgow and Hellboy, 
I'd replace Rasputin with him. I think okay. it would be very interesting. Get him in a beard, make him dress like the frontman of a tribute band for Judas Priest. I love the idea of him playing just an absolute villain. And I would have him making the noises for the squid thing that comes out of him as well. Just to hear him make the noises of like... <laughs> stuff like that would just be hilarious to me. Plus, I feel like he could do a better job at, you know, making Rasputin a little bit more affable. Making him a little bit more flighty in a sense. Just make him a little bit more interesting to watch, because what we had was very, I'm the bad guy. If you give him more character, like like what Lawson was talking about with the bad guy in Shang-Chi, you need to make a villain, you need to give a villain colors, you need to give them interesting texture, you need to give them shades, because that's what leads to an iconic villain. Mm. And plus... I think Lithgow would have done a better Russian accent as well. I would love to see him try to be like Tolstoy or Trotsky or... Interesting. Has he ever done that? It certainly raises the question. Also, I'd love to hear him do an Irish accent. That would make my day. No, I can't see him having done that, no. He's done an Aussie accent. Yes. <laughs> All right, so now we get to the point where we vote whether we are a pro Hellboy podcast. I will start us off and I will say right off the bat that no, I don't think we should be a pro Hellboy podcast. I like this movie a lot. I think it's got a lot going for it, but it's also too fundamentally flawed a piece of work mm. for us to really endorse it as part of our our fantasy hand-picked Blu-ray line. Yeah. It's a cool idea. It really makes me want a proper Hellboy adaptation. It seems like something that will be more suited for TV than film, frankly. And it's got a lot of cool stuff in it with you know, all of the cosmic horror stuff. Del Toro's obsession with production design is on display here to full effect. But, you know, the the problems with character, the problems with the love triangle, the not very interesting villain in Rasputin, there's too many problems here for me to really be able to endorse it as much as I would want to. So... Yes, I vote no. Uh, I agree with Lawson. This movie is both a swing for the fences in terms of its content, like Cosmic Horror and stuff like that, but also plays it really safe. It rests in that weird middle ground where it should have gone weirder mm. than it did. I do like it. I think it has a lot of merit, but again, I, I can't say that... We're a pro Hellboy podcast. As much as I liked it, as much as I have now come to adore the original Mignola comic work, I just I want to see that translated mm. to screen more than this sort of sanitized version. I agree. I I'm not pro this movie either. It's good, but not great. You know, it's it's a fine movie. It's a fine blockbuster film, but there's just something missing. You know. It's missing just that essence of greatness that other movies have. It has Del Toro's essence, but it doesn't have that thing that makes Pan's Labyrinth great. It doesn't have that thing that makes Shape of Water great, you know? It's just missing something that I, ju I don't know what it is. It's just missing something. It's Del Toro diluted by studio. Yeah. Yes, that's what it is. That's definitely what it is. I don't know. There's... Sometimes I can't put into words why a movie doesn't impact me as much. There's just something intangible missing. Alright, so it turns out we are not a pro 
Hellboy podcast. But now we get to vote on whether we're an anti-Hellboy podcast, Lawson. No, no. There's too much I like here. I don't think this is going to be a surprise with any of our votes here because we've we've said too many kind things about it and I don't need to go into anything more there. I I summed it up perfectly well, I think. No, this is not a bad enough movie for us to be anti. It is, in fact, a good movie. It is, yeah. Yeah. As much as it isn't a great movie, it's still a good movie. You'll get entertainment out of it. I was entertained while watching it this. Look, it's not Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind. It's a good movie to throw on. It's someone's favorite movie. I know that can be the case. I'm not against this movie at all. It's good. Yeah, I concur with you guys. I can't be against it. And to be against a Guillermo del Toro movie... It wouldn't sit right. It wouldn't sit right with me. It just simply wouldn't. There's too much artistry here. There's too much effort put in beyond all the studio sort of meddling. Well, there you go. I'm not against it. We are simply ambivalent. Now that we have this voting pro or not, we we felt that it would be a good idea to go back to our catalogue of episodes and retroactively say whether or not we are pro or anti the movies that we have done before we implemented this thing. So we're going to be doing those five of those movies every week until we've cleared that off. But we're not going to be doing the summation thing. We're just going to be doing a real quick yes-no thing. I will start us off. The movies that we're talking about this week are Hardware, Popcorn, The Silence of the Lambs, Beauty and the Beast, and JFK. And I can say very quickly that I am pro all of those movies. There's not not one there that I would not be perfectly fine putting in our Blu-ray collection. What was the list again? Hardware, Popcorn, The Silence of the Lambs, Beauty and the Beast, and JFK. Yep, they're all pretty great films. I would say I'm pro all but Hardware. With Hardware, I more stand ambivalent. All right, that was quick. Who would you replace... Okay, just, 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 I'll do it for one of them. I'll do it for one of them. Who do you have Lisko play in Silence of the Lambs? Lecter, yeah, 110%. Oh, you can't, part of me really wants to see him as Buffalo Bill. Mm-hmm. Mm. Hmm. No, Lecter, no, Lecter. Have to be like that. Be like I love that. how you both went on the same trip. It was like a roller coaster. <laughs> it's like I was standing on the sidelines we watching the this happen. Going from Lecter. Oh, wait. Nah, Lecter. So, Lawson, what do we have next week? Well, next week, well, I talked a few weeks back, actually, when we were doing The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, how it was sort of the first instalment of a trilogy of films that are not actually a trilogy, but I sort of associate them like that because they were the first sort of adult genre movies that I really got into. You'd find them in a box set. You could, yeah. But we are moving on to another one of those movies, a a real favourite of mine. We will be talking about the Hugh Jackman vehicle, Van Helsing, next week. (laughs) If you'd like to watch along at home, it is available for streaming in Australia on Netflix, Binge and Foxtel Now as well as for purchase or rental on the YouTube, Fetch, Apple, and Amazon stores, but it is only available in 4K on the Apple and Amazon stores. If you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at ExtraDidTheCandyCount. You can find John and myself at On the Bright Side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What did you think about Hellboy? Have you read the comics? Are you a movie-only person? Or... Have you watched the David Harbour Hellboy? What did you think about that? Do you that? main him in Injustice 2? Hellboy's fine in that game. Not exactly who I'd go for. That's where you can reach us. You can also like, comment, and subscribe on your podcast step of choice. Just remember commenting there is for like the, the show on the whole, as opposed to individual episodes. Like I said, individual feedback, better for the Twitter. 
We'll still take movie recommendations on your podcast app of choice, though. Like, comment, and subscribe. You may imagine that the machine-run world has become a secular place without religion. Not so. The machines actually encourage people to keep their previously held faiths. After all, faith is incredibly important to many people's sense of self, and the robots want nothing more than for us to be at least comfortable. When it comes to what the machines believe, however, it's much more complicated. They know who made them. We're there, present before them. Their creators are flawed and oftentimes small, inobservable, practical ways. Some machines are subsumed by the questions of faith, the existence of a god being unprovable by its very definition. Many machines have gone mad, trying to wade through the confusing and oftentimes contradictory messages that religions provide. <laughs> uh, I want to know how these. many times in this small novella that you're writing that you use the term not so. Quite a lot. My name is Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been and will continue being Jean Lewis. <laughs> <laughs>